0: So yeah, before we begin, I just want to make sure I have your biographical information correct. So you are Professor David Kipping. Um, you're an assistant professor at, of astronomy at Columbia. Is that correct?
1: Right. I don't know who I'm assisting, but.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those those names, I've never quite understood what that, you know, assistant professor, associate professor.
1: It's I'm just to put you I in your said. place when you're talking to senior <laughs> faculty. Kind of, oh,
0: you're just an assistant though, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Our guest today is Professor David Kipping from Columbia University. And our topic is that little question about how likely or unlikely we are to be alone in the universe. Our discussion will be based on a paper that David published earlier this year, one in which he tackles the probabilities of life's emergence and the emergence of intelligent life on Earth. David's calculations demonstrate strong odds for the origin of life happening rapidly on an Earth-like planet. Nine to one odds, in fact. However, the odds of intelligent life being rare are three to two. That is, it's slightly more likely, given what we know about the evolution of life on Earth, that intelligence is rare. I was inspired to read David's study because of a question that completely stumped me on episode 101, that episode where I took questions from you, my listeners. Tyler Perez asked, How would you rate the probabilities of extraterrestrial life and intelligent life separately? My initial answer was, I have no idea. And it wasn't the kind of, shrug your shoulders, I have no idea. It was a very strong and determined, I have no idea. Like, I have no idea and it would be wrong to have an idea. Because how could one possibly know those probabilities, given how little we've explored our universe so far? But then I stumbled upon this paper that David wrote where he actually does those calculations. And I thought to myself, why not bring him aboard Strange New Worlds to tell me how he did them? When talking to David, I was pleased to find out that, initially, he felt similarly uncertain about the probabilities of life and intelligent life in the universe. Until, of course, he did the math.
1: Before I did this analysis, my, my position was literally 50-50. So if you asked me, would a biosignature search succeed? I would say, I have no idea. And if someone said to me, do you think we're alone in the galaxy or in the universe? I would say, I don't know. And I even did a video about that, and it, it really jibes a lot of people, because they're like, how can you say you don't know? Surely, given this trillions trillions of worlds, how can there possibly not be life elsewhere? in the universe. And isn't it the ultimate act of hubris to claim that even? Like, isn't it arrogant to claim that? And I reject that on a couple of levels. One is that we have no idea, no idea what the probability of life emerging is, at least certainly before I did this study, I had no idea what probability of life emerging was. And so it could be 10 to the minus 40. If it's 10 to the minus 40, then you would expect basically zero hits in the universe (laughs) and like we are just this lucky fluke that got over the barrier and maybe most universes don't have life in them at all and we just happen to live in the one you count up enough you'll eventually get a success. Um, So, there's no reason why the probability couldn't be 10 to the minus 40. In fact, if you look at calculations of what's the chance of amino acids randomly coming together to form a protein, it's like ridiculously tiny probabilities. Maybe there's some kind of catalytic process that's helping it along, but we don't understand how to quantify the probabilities yet. It may indeed be a very small number still. So I think you have to be at least open to that possibility. And I would claim if if you think the answer is definitely yes then what's the point in looking? Like, What's the point in doing the experiment if you think you already know the answer? It's like, uh, I'm not going to spend my time in my office here dropping coins on the floor to see if they fall to the floor over and over again to test gravity because that is a theory that has already been tested. We know the answer. But if you claim that you know the answer already, you wouldn't spend your time doing that experiment over and over again. It wouldn't be worth your time. So I don't understand uh, in a way what the point of this are we alone question is if, you're, if your default position is Yes. It is like 100% yes. So of course, of course there's somebody else out there in the universe. And then just about this hubris thing because I think about this recently because Seth Shostak wrote about this. And he he tends to take the opinion. I think Sagan probably took this opinion as well that it's kind of arrogant to assume that we are the only ones in the universe, but um, you know, this is chemistry, this is physical processes happening and an analogy might be to look at snowflakes. And every snowflake is different. There's no snowflake that's the same as each other snowflake. And chemistry is just a rearrangement of of atoms. Um, So if we say, well, there's nothing special about this arrangement, you know, what constitutes what we call life is not a particularly special arrangement. It's just one of the many, many, many possible ways in which chemicals can be arranged. And when they're arranged in this way, they do the things that we observe them to do. But I think it's a little bit arrogant to assume that there's some, you're kind of assuming there's something remarkably special and unique Um, And that that uniqueness is only what we are assigning to it. We think life is special because we are life, but that doesn't mean that the universe cares about life or it it thinks it's a particularly inevitable circumstance. It might just be another variant of the trillions of possible flavors in which chemicals arrange themselves. So, yeah, I kind of don't buy into the into those two arguments but all all that being said i'm actually kind of optimistic because of this study the study that it did but before that i was very much on the
0: fence now before we dive into the full interview and unveil the details of david's study i'll warn you that there are going to be some technical bits i was really curious about david's reasoning and logic behind his calculations especially in the face of our mutual profound ignorance So that's why I gave you the results up front—9 to 1 odds that life begins early, 3 to 2 odds that intelligence is rare. If you stopped here, you already have the punchline. But I hope that you stick around and soak in the entire conversation with David, because this is a great glimpse at how science works. For example, our discussion of Bayesian statistics—the method that David employs—gets at the heart of how we know what we know. And David's references to previous papers shows how science is built in layers, where new research advances our understanding by fixing the mistakes of previous attempts while laying bare its own precarious assumptions that the next generation of scientists can improve upon. And if you stick it out, you'll also get to hear all about David's first contact with Star Trek, the cool work that is going on at the Cool Worlds Lab, and the incredible work that he's doing at his fantastic YouTube channel. Ready? Here we go. Professor David Kipping, thanks for joining me on Strange New Worlds during these strange new times. Uh, How are you holding up?
1: Holding up okay, thanks. Yeah, we just took a week off, which was the first time I've taken a vacation since this all began. And, you know, usually when you take a vacation, you would, you'd go away and you'd really recharge your batteries. And it's been a bit different. We've done a staycation, obviously, because of everything happening. But even that break from just checking emails and stuff was really nice. I'm feeling a bit refreshed, ready to go for the next, next couple of months at least and see how we hold <laughs> up until then.
0: Yeah. Are you teaching online this coming semester or quarter? I'm not really sure which one Columbia is on.
1: Yeah, we do the semesters. So I am teaching, it's a graduate class and it's uh, just talking about the students' research primarily and research practices. So um, that's the kind of class that I think we can still do in hybrid mode. And as things progress, I'm not sure. We'll see how things go. We'll play it by ear a little bit.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that you have a really good handle of how to integrate technology into the classroom since you have this YouTube series uh, going on about uh, about your work and exoplanets and searching for life and things like that. So I'll definitely have some questions for you about uh, your science outreach later on. But I always like to begin, because this is a science and Star Trek podcast, with um, my guest's Star Trek origin stories. So David, could you tell me how you discovered Star Trek and did it play a role in you becoming an astronomer?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I first discovered Star Trek when I was, it was TNG, the next generation. And I'm not exactly sure how old I was, but I remember coming home from school. I must've been, I'd guess, like somewhere between eight and 11. And I'd run home from school and at 6 p.m. on BBC Two, they would air episodes of TNG. And uh, I remember I had a TV in my bedroom and that was like the, the one, time I was allowed to have it on. And it was just like my hour just to lie on the bed and just absorb these episodes. And I was really inspired by the show, the way science was portrayed, the the hopeful future that Gene Roddenberry presented, and just sort of the mind-bending concepts that were often introduced with time travel and other dimensions and faster than light travel, things like this. So all of those things definitely influenced me quite a bit. And I remember when I was really young, I used to lie uh, just on the grass, looking up at the stars and imagining whether there were starships flying by, maybe right now, <laughs> observing the Earth and, you know, just waiting for us to cross the warp threshold so they would actually communicate with us. So I was, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time thinking about Star Trek and it, in some sense, I'm sure it influenced me to become a scientist.
0: That's really wonderful to hear that you, you know, across the pond had very similar experiences to me. You know, I also reclined on the couch and put on Star Trek or looked up at the night sky and wondered who was looking back at me. Um, So that's that's really fun to hear. Um, So now you get to actually research some really mind bending concepts of your own over at Columbia University. You lead a team called the Cool Worlds Lab. Why is it called the Cool Worlds Lab, and what kind of work do you and your group do?
1: Yeah, when people hear the name Cool Worlds, they, they normally think we mean like like dope worlds, <laughs> like in that <laughs> colloquial sense, <laughs> which is never my intention. But um, I mean, it has a little bit of a play on that. But really, the, we were, you know, there's this uh, before I started my group, there was a big focus, still is, on cool stars. And there was a, a group in, I think, San Diego called the Cool Stars Group. And I thought that was a great name for a group. And I was always interested in, as you probably know, looking for moons and looking for maybe rings and even eventually life on planets. And all of that lends itself towards planets which are further away from their stars than the majority of planets which we currently know about. And that's because of, sort of the selection effects that uh, scooped the way that these telescopes are able to find planets. So only a very small fraction of the planets that we know about are actually at the sort of distances where you might expect there to be satellite systems or ring systems or even life. And so those few but special worlds were of great interest to me. And so I decided that that would be a good focus for our group. You know, we are interested in moons, but it's just one of the things we're interested in. And so that umbrella name seemed to encompass a lot of the things that we're interested in. It's probably not far enough, to be honest. There's things we do that aren't even to do with planets sometimes. So you know that's uh, that's hard to have a, a single umbrella term that gets everything. But I definitely didn't want to call it the Kipping Lab. I, I knew I didn't want to call it that. I know some people go that way. Yeah. But my advisor, Gaspar Bakos, uh, said, "Don't do that. <laughs> like, Just don't do that." <laughs> and I, you know, I was—it wasn't like I was like really tempted to do that or anything. But um, he said that to me early on in my career, and I was like, that always, you know, was in the voice in the back of my head. Like, mm-hmm. don't make this about you. It's supposed to be about the science.
0: Yeah, that's a good tip. Well, I, I, can, I can already tell that uh, I'll have to have you or maybe some of your students on board Strange New Worlds at a later point to talk about some of that excellent, you know, exo moons, exo rings work, because that's super interesting. And we definitely have yeah. uh, instances of, of really cool moons and uh, ring systems in Star Trek. So I'll save that for a future date. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're here to chat about your paper titled An Objective Bayesian Analysis of Life's Early Start and Our Late Arrival. And in this paper, your main questions that you're tackling are how quickly does life arise and how likely is it for intelligent life to arise once non-intelligent primitive life has, uh, has already arisen on a planet? Um, and Star Trek gives us a universe where both of those seem pretty common, uh, but we don't know if that's the universe that we live in. And your recent work is a step towards understanding whether or not we do. Now, before we dive into the actual paper, I'd like to talk about what Bayesian statistics or Bayesian inference actually is. Now, I took an astro statistics course in my first year of grad school, which was so long ago. Uh, And so I have this appreciation of this amazing tool, but I haven't actually touched the subject myself since that class, because I really don't use Bayesian statistics in my own research. Uh, So I definitely feel for all my listeners who maybe have never heard of Bayesian analysis before, um, this remarkable but powerful way of thinking. So let's all get on the same page. David, can you describe what Bayes' theory is for us?
1: Sure. So Bayes' theorem is, is named after Thomas Bayes, who was this reverend who had this unusual way, I guess, at the time of thinking about statistical inference. And for a long time, this school of thought was unnoticed or underappreciated, one might say. And it started to gain much more traction in the last few decades as computers have become fast enough for us to implement many of the ideas that Bayes was really talking about. Um, what is it? How is it different? So probably the, the way most of us think about statistics is in a frequentist framework, as we would call it. Frequentism is all about counting. Frequency It's in the name. Frequency. How often does something happen? And so kind of a nice example I might use to describe the difference between frequentists and Bayesians, it really comes down to the question that they're asking. So let's take the example of life on a planet, let's say Mars for instance, and we send a rover onto the planet Mars and we're trying to figure out if there's life there, right? That's the that's the thing that I guess there was just a new rover launched just recently that's trying to do the, yeah, the same perseverance. thing. Um, mm-hmm. Perseverance, that's right. Yeah, thank you. And so a frequentist would ask, what is the probability that the rover uh, detects life given that there was life on Mars? That would be the question it's asking. So it's sort of Assuming there's life on Mars, if we assume there's life on Mars and we scoop up a bit of soil, how often would we expect the mission to get give a yes? And that, that's really the question it's asking. But if you think about that, we don't really care about that question. I, I would say that's not really the interesting question to ask. The interesting question to ask is, what's the probability that there's life on Mars, given that you scooped up something which seems to be lifelike? Mm-hmm. That's the more interesting question. It's just it's flipped it. That, that's all it is. We've just flipped that, um, what we call the conditional in Bayesian parlance. So I'm asking, what's the probability that Viking detects life? That's the frequentist way, given that there's life on Mars. And a Bayesian flips that and says, what's the probability of their life on Mars, given that Viking detected life on Mars? So they sound almost identical when, when you're listening. You have to maybe replay that a couple of times to get it. But... It's a subtly different, yet very powerfully, um, foundationally distinct question which it is asking. And I would argue it's the question we really care about. So in my case, I'm really asking, what is the probability that life would re-emerge on the Earth, given the data we know about the Earth or the events that we know about the Earth? Whereas a frequentist would really say, what's the probability of getting that data, given that life exists on the Earth? Mm -hmm. which doesn't really, to me, advance us very far. So a lot of us who are tackling this question go the Bayesian way just because it makes a lot more sense. You're asking the question that you directly care about. Now, the downside of going this Bayesian route, I'm not going to go into the mathematical details of this, but the downside is that by invoking this principle, and this is the big criticism people often have about Bayesians, is that you have to have what's called a prior so um, there's just sort of no way around this, unfortunately. But if if I'm going to ask what's the probability of their life on Mars, given that Viking detected life, that's actually going to be equal to the frequentist probability multiplied by what we call the prior probability. And that prior in this case would be what's the prior probability of their life being on Mars? Well, who knows? I mean, h- how do you choose that number or that function or that distribution? That's where it gets really really tricky. And this has been one of the things that has held us up in a lot of the inference papers in the past trying to tackle this question. And I would claim it's one of the things I I really tried to do a good job on in my paper. And we can talk about that. But there are some ways for sort of thinking very carefully about how to choose that prior and how it influences your results.
0: Yes, uh, I noticed that maybe half or a little more than half of your paper was all about how to choose that ideal prior, and we'll definitely return to that. Um, but just on the subject of Bayesian algorithms or Bayesian inference at large, like you said, it's all about the question that you're actually interested in, and Bayesian statistics allow, allow you to try to approach other questions that are outside of the frequentist realm. Is that an appropriate summation? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, Um, yeah. Let's let's put it there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, and I guess the question that you're asking in this paper is one of those that we really want to ask in a in a Bayesian way. So we all want to know if we are alone in the universe, uh, but in astrobiology we have this so-called n equals one issue, which is the problem that when it comes to life in the universe all we know about so far is us. So it's hard to extrapolate Mm. from a single data point. It's hard to draw a trend. It's hard to make predictions. And it makes it really hard to know from the history of life on earth alone, whether life should be rare or common elsewhere. So David, how do you apply Bayesian inference to this question in your paper?
1: The n equals 1 problem is definitely the big obstacle here. We only have one data point. It's actually even worse than that because in many ways, we have even less than one data point for a couple of reasons. In my paper, I only focus on chronology just to give some context here. I'm interested in basically two numbers. When did life emerge on the earth? And when did what we would recognize as intelligent life emerge on the earth? Those are the only two numbers I care about. And so if you're going to frame it that way, uh, you would love to know both of those numbers precisely. And of course, we don't know both of those numbers precisely. In particular, for the first number, when life began, we can only give you an upper limit. I can only say that life appeared on the earth by this time, because I can't record it was on Tuesday, the 7th of July, that, it, this, that life, at 6am, that life appeared. That doesn't really make, it doesn't even really make a lot of sense to even put it that way, because... Like, how does something go from non-life to life in an instantaneous moment? It's surely a continuous process. Mm -hmm. So it makes much more sense to just call it an upper limit. And so in that sense, it's more of a half a data point. Now, you might criticize that and say, well, how can you learn anything from one or even half a data point? Surely you can learn nothing, in fact, you might say. And that's wrong because there's nothing magical that happens when you go from one data point to two data points. It's not like there's some fundamental transition from one to two or -hmm. from two to three. If there's any transition, it's from zero to one because zero means you had no data at all. And now you have some data. So it's not much, but you do have some data. So it's not true to say you've learned nothing. You have learned something, but you just have to be very, very careful with how you deal with that one data point. And the other big influence here is selection bias. We would not be here to talk about this, to do this analysis, were it not for the fact life was successful on the Earth. That's a big constraint as well. But for intelligent life, the selection effect is much weaker because intelligent life really could have emerged at any point in the four and a half billion year history of the Earth. It doesn't have to have emerged just now. In about a billion years, the Earth will become uninhabitable to intelligent life, to complex multicellular life. And so we actually emerged quite late in the game we're we're almost in the last sort of sextile the last sixth of the earth's habitable window and there's no reason why that has to be true it could have equally emerged in the first sextile or the middle sextile and that wouldn't have affected any aspect of this analysis the human beings sort of potentially emerged or some intelligent being, and could have conducted this analysis, have done the paleontology, have done the genetic sampling, have done the, all the hard work to get the same data. So that selection effect is weaker, but the selection effect that life had to start quickly could be quite important. If the process by which intelligent life evolves is a very, very slow one, and it typically takes four to five billion years for that to happen, then the fact that life began quickly may simply be a necessity to our existence rather than an interesting point in of itself. So these are all the subtleties, these are the selection effects. And uh, these are all accounted for quite carefully in the paper through various mathematical mechanisms, which maybe are, are probably too much to go into. But I think that kind of gives you a grounding as to how I approach the problem. I take these, these chronologies, these two timings, I take the time available, which is when the Earth will become uninhabitable, so that's almost like a, a maximum time, and I take that data and I ask, if I reran Earth's clock and I assume that life is sort of a random process, how often would I expect life to reemerge, given what happened the first time over? And how often would I expect intelligent life to reemerge? Mm-hmm. And to be really specific, I'm talking about an exact clone of the earth. I mean, the meteorites hit us in the same order, the same sequence, the same timing. Everything external happened in the same way. It really is like rerunning time. And that's how you get around this n equals one data point problem because... If I'm only talking about the Earth, the exact Earth, then I have a pretty solid data point about the Earth. Do I have data about other Earth-like planets or other slightly different Earths to us outside in other parts of the galaxy? No, I have no data on those. So I'm not going to make any claims about those. But about the Earth, yes, I can make claims about how often this random process should reappear.
0: So you describe life as, or the emergence of life as a random process or a Poisson process as you you write in technical terms in your paper. Um, So what does this actually mean about your assumption of how life began? I know that there are many different models for the origin of life. Does this encompass all of them or a subset of them? Or how does that factor into your analysis? Yeah.
1: This is like the one assumption in the paper that that bugs me. So um, to give you some, uh, some background before i directly answer that there was this paper that my paper is really, I think of as almost like the extension of, and this was this paper by Spiegel and Turner that came a few years before mine and they kind of got stuck in some parts. And I, I think I resolved some of those issues in my paper, but their big assumption and it has been pretty much the assumption of any statistical analysis of this question throughout the years has been this, what we call a Poisson rate process it's probably easier to conceptualize that as a uniform rate process. What does that mean? It means in any interval of time, uh, say from zero to 100 million years after the Earth became habitable, the probability of life emerging is the same as from 50 to 150 million years after the Earth became habitable. You can take any 100 million year window and the probability of a success is the same. That is the assumption. Now, it may be that conditions dramatically change over time. I mean, certainly, to some, some extent, they must change over time. But a lot of the changes that, of course, happen on the Earth are a direct result of life's activity on the Earth. That guess gets really difficult to disentangle those two things. As long as you assume that the conditions by which life emerged did not significantly alter over the first few cycles of the timescale at which it seems to have emerged at, then this is a reasonable thing to do. Um, but it's, it's still like the flakiest part of the whole analysis. Now, you might say, okay, well, let's do better. Why make that assumption? Let's choose a better assumption. Let's assume that uh, the probability of life uniformly increases over time, that the next 100 million years is twice as good as the last 100 million years. Well, how do you know it's twice as good? Why isn't it 1.8 times as good? or 0.9 times as good, or you know, it could go the other direction. Right, rise and um, Or how do you even know it's a linear? It could be a quadratic. It could be a cubic. You, I mean, you could just start to invent anything at this yeah. point. So then you get into Occam's razor, and you start to say, well, given the data that I have in hand, is such a complex model justified, given the extremely sparse and limited data I have in hand? And so, yes, you can surely envisage you know much more complicated models than this with thousands of free parameters, but it's just completely overkill. You're just you can overparameterize it to death, but you're not really learning anything. So generally an approach to science is use the simplest model you can, because by Occam's razor, usually the simplest explanation is the right one, all things being equal in the absence of any other controlling information. So I have to say, you know, that's sort of my counter argument to it. But I myself, I'm not 100% satisfied with that assumption. But I just don't know what else to do. And no one apparently knows what else to do in the literature. It's just this is the assumption everyone makes. So I at least wanted to take that standard assumption and run it into the ground, if you like. Take it as far as you can take it. And solve all of the other problems that have been addressed about this inference aspect, and then I hope somebody after me will come along and improve upon that assumption as well. But whenever you're doing modeling, there's assumption. You can't have a model that's completely assumption-free. It doesn't. And if you're doing inference, then you're regressing a model to data. That's what inference means. So there really isn't any way around it. Every model has an assumption. And all things you know, thing said, this doesn't have many assumptions. This is pretty much the assumption of the entire model. So I can sleep with it. I can live with it. But I would hope over time we could improve upon
0: it. To recap so far, David is trying to calculate the rate at which life emerges on an Earth-like planet. He assumes that it is a random process, as if Mother Nature rolled a pair of dice every few million years or so, And if they came up snake eyes, life would appear. The question that he's after is, how many sides do those dice have? If Mother Nature is rolling six-sided dice, life is statistically more likely to appear quicker than if she's rolling d20s. The critical assumption in David's paper is that the number of sides of the dice don't change with time until life finally emerges. Now, that's a big assumption because the conditions of the early Earth certainly did change over time. And whether there was a big meteor impact yesterday, whether continents have emerged or not, or what the atmospheric composition currently is, could all affect the probability of life emerging at any given point in time. But, like David said, people disagree vehemently on all of these details about the early Earth, and their effect on the origin of life. So, for now, it's just best to assume that Mother Nature was playing with the same dice the entire time. Next, David is concerned with the origin of intelligent life. And for that, he'll need a definition of intelligence.
1: There is a very specific definition of intelligence here. And it's definitely not the Star Trek definition of intelligence, but it's a very practical one for the purposes of this paper. So remember with this problem, the, the big issue is selection effect, is we can only do this study had life begun on the earth and had intelligent life emerged on the earth. Well, however you define intelligent life, we'll just, we'll come to that now. So the selection effect is, is what goes into the mathematics. And so you have to ask yourself, well, how am I defining that selection effect? Because that's really what defines intelligent life. In the paper, I say there's basically two aspects to this. One is that you are a group of beings, (laughs) if you like, (laughs) who is not necessarily even a society, who can collect the geological evidence which we have in hand. You have to be able to have the data. So in this paper, I'm conditioned upon data, which is that life appears to have emerged rapidly on the earth, but you have to collect that data point. So however you define what intelligent life is, it has to be able to do that thing. So that's more or less one of the key defining characteristics of what I mean by intelligent life, that they can do geology. And the second is that they can do statistics. Because this whole paper is, an, is a statistical argument. It's using Bayesian statistics. So they have to be able to do those two things. If you can't do those two things, then you they wouldn't be able to get the study which I wrote. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit kind of like the snake eating its tail a little bit, this definition. But that really is in a very concrete sense, the, the selection effect which scoops the publication of this paper. You, know, you wouldn't be able to publish this paper were those two things not true.
0: Mm -hmm. So you did mention that your paper is uh, largely based on the work of a a previous paper. And I feel like one thing that you do that takes things a step beyond what has been done in the past is that you allow the timescale of evolution to be this free or inferred parameter. So can you talk a little bit about that and why that's super important to your analysis?
1: Correct. Yeah, very, very astute. Those are basically the two, uh, there's two big assumptions in that previous paper. Well, there's three. The third is the one I'm making as well. So let's just signal that one. That's this Poisson uniform rate thing. We're both making that assumption. So let's just leave that aside. The other two assumptions they make that I do not make is one, as you just said, that the evolution timescale in their paper is a fixed number. They actually try two different numbers and it's you know, fairly arbitrary. They just try 1.4 giga years, 1.4 billion years and 3.5 billion years. But there's no. We don't really know if those numbers are right or wrong. They're essentially just made up numbers. They're not unreasonable numbers given what happened on the Earth, but we don't know that we are just uh, an outlier example on the grand scheme of things. So it's somewhat arbitrary to set them to that choice. The second assumption they make is is with the priors. We talked about priors a little bit already, but whenever you do Bayesian inference, you have to choose the priors, and they kind of get stuck there again. And they sort of make three somewhat arbitrary choices of the prior. And actually, none of them are what we would call an objective prior. There's this whole school of Bayesian thought called objective Bayesianism, and none of them are objective priors. They're all essentially what we call subjective priors. Someone just made them up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and not surprisingly, when you try these, so they have three different priors and two different evolutionary timescales, six different numbers altogether. They get six different answers and the six different answers are wildly different from each other, which isn't surprising <laughs> yeah. given how crappy the data is. It's not surprising that you try six different assumptions, you get six different answers. But um, if you're going to try and figure out how fast life emerges, why not just also try and figure out how fast intelligent life emerges uh, at the same time? Like, those are both unknown quantities. Just try and learn both of them. And the power of doing that is that you then encode what we call like the degeneracies between them. So these two numbers have sort of mutual intricate dependencies upon one another in the statistical inference problem, and you're allowing for that. You're propagating the ignorance of your lack of knowledge into the problem rather than assuming a very specific choice. And then similarly for the priors, we can talk about that maybe uh, momentarily, but that's another instance of where there are actually ways to sort of not just a a very specific and arbitrary number, you can actually do a bit better than
0: that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's turn to the priors now. I do have uh, a couple questions about that. You spend a lot of the paper trying to derive a very fair, unbiased and objective prior. Um, Like you said at the beginning when we were talking about Bayes' theorem and things like that, uh, a prior is essentially everything that you bring that you already know to the question so it makes sense that you want it to be unbiased and objective, but how is that done without doing any equations or getting too technical? How, how in, in, in principle is that arrived at?
1: To lead off from the Spiegel and Turner paper just as a point of comparison, the whole framing of their problem, and indeed my problem as well is that life is this random process and there 's a certain time scale, a time scale by which life emerges, and they 're trying to learn that timescale. But that timescale could be anything, right? It could be a day. That could be the typical timescale that life appears spontaneously. It could be a billion years or a trillion years. And we just could be the lucky fluke that it happened as quick as it did. It could be any of those numbers. So let's say you tried what we'd call a uniform distribution, which just basically means every number is as likely as any other number. Now, that is what most people would say that's objective. That's the uninformative objective choice. And that is definitely wrong. And it's, it's subtle, but it's interesting. So first off, if you use a uniform prior, you're really biased against those very small values. So let's say the true value is a number somewhere between a day and a week, like it's some some number around there. Now, if my prior is uniform from zero to 10 billion years, that's a very, very tiny sliver of, <laughs> of the range. Mm-hmm. And so um, if it's a number that's more like five to six billion years, that's you know, thousand, a, million, a million times, I'm not sure, a million times larger volume than that other volume. So mm-hmm. your mathematical inference is going to be strongly biased towards bigger values if you do that. So that's kind of subtle, but if you don't know the order of magnitude of a number, you have no idea if it's a day, a week, a month, a year, a gig a year, then a uniform prior is not appropriate because it skews you way towards the high end. So what you want to do instead is is use, uh, as they do in the paper, like a log uniform prior. You take the logarithm and then you're saying that all of the orders of magnitude are equally likely. So 10 to the minus five, Billion years is just as likely as 10 to the 5 billion years. So you're saying the order of magnitudes are flat, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that's an improvement. The problem with that distribution is that you have to define a minimum and a maximum to it. The minimum can't be zero. Otherwise, mathematically, you just get infinities in it. So you have to choose a minimum value. And that's completely arbitrary. So let's say I chose my minimum value to be a year. Life definitely can't start quicker than a year then what if the true answer is a day? Then the model you're using is incorrect. So you might say, okay, fine, I'll just put it really, really small. I'll make it like a millisecond or something. But then that might be way too over generous. You might talk to a chemist who says, there's no way that's possible that life could start in a millisecond from prebiotic conditions. And because of the nature of your statistical inference, you're putting even weight on that possibility as much longer timescales. So this this is where it gets like really messy and hard. Like whatever you do, you seem doomed to make arbitrary choices. (laughs) That's that's (laughs) why it (laughs) gets so frustrating. So this this was where we were. Now, what do I do that was different? I basically point out that you really do want a prior that goes from zero to infinity, because off the bat, whatever form it's going to be, it needs to do that. And the log uniform and the uniform distribution, they're not going to do that, so just forget about those. Now, there is kind of a trick. It comes from like a, a biologist and uh, a statistician called John Haldane, and he kind of uh, pointed out this uh, interesting argument for what ultimately ended up being the choice of prior used in my paper. And we also, we're gonna talk about Frank Drake a little bit here as well. So I'm t- you know, Spiegel and Turner in this original paper framed it as a timescale, the time scale at which life emerged. Frank Drake thinks about the problem very differently. If you've ever heard of the, the Drake equation, i assume probably many of your viewers have heard of this famous mm-hmm. equation. Yep. He just does a multiplication of fractions, where one of the fractions is the fraction of planets which has life on it. There's no time scale in that number. It's just a number between zero and one. And you can convert between them. So you could say in a five billion year window, what is the chance that this time scale will lead to a success? And that will give you Drake's number, F. And F is a much more attractive quantity to work with in this analysis because it doesn't have any units. It goes from zero to one. And um, you can actually invoke this argument that John Haldane, as I mentioned, discussed. So his argument, he was thinking about chemistry and uh, he said, uh, let's imagine I had a uh, hundred beakers of water and I had the same chemical and I just poured that chemical into all 100 beakers. They're all the same temperature. Everything's the same. So these are my earth-like clones. It's the exact same earth over and over again. I pour the chemical in and I see if it dissolves. I -hmm. stir each of them, see if it dissolves. Now you would expect the answer to be pretty much 100% yes of them will dissolve or pretty much 0% of them will dissolve. It'd be really odd if half of them dissolved and half of them didn't. That would be a really peculiar situation. And so, In the same way, if you took millions of earths, given the exact same conditions, the exact same prebiotic chemistry available to them, you would expect that either pretty much all of them have life on them or very, very few of them have life on them. And they're more like the outliers, the ones that do get life. And so if you frame it in that way, uh, your prior isn't uniform between zero and one. It curves up at the edges. It really likes numbers close to zero and it really likes numbers close to one. And it does not like numbers in the middle.
0: So yeah, that's why I was looking at your figure here, and maybe this is too much in the weeds for for the podcast. Obviously, the listeners can't see the figure, but I'll try to describe it, where you plot the prior function, as a function of this fraction, F that we were just talking about, this sort of Drake equation, fraction of planets on which life emerges. And it's a U shape, meaning that it's very yes. high at zero. Uh, you know There's a high probability that life will never originate and a very high probability on the other end where life will always originate, but a valley in between saying that it's very unlikely that that the probability for life occurring is 50%, like like a coin flip. And so this is where that thinking comes from.
1: Correct. And it was actually subsequently shown by the school of objective Bayesians, as they call themselves, that you can mathematically prove that this is the least informative prior for this type of problem. And that's really what you want when you do Bayesian inference. You want to choose a prior which least influences your answer least informative to your answer and you can demonstrate that this prior is indeed that prior Um, and you know john haldane had this kind of hand wavy argument to it but it was sort of proven more rigorously many years later by uh, james was the one who actually demonstrated that so we use that argument in this paper and so you can then extend this framework so you've got life is either basically always going to emerge or very very rarely emerge and intelligence too Intelligence too, you can do the same argument and say that either very rarely emerges or almost always emerges given that once life gets going. And so you end up with four corners. You can imagine drawing like a box where you're sort of imagining all the possibilities of you know between zero and one of these two numbers, two axes on both directions. And you would have hotspots of most a priori likely being in the four corners. That either sort of life is very rare But once it gets going, intelligence is almost inevitable, would be one of the corners. Or for instance, life is very common, but it very rarely goes on to form intelligent life. So you'd have these four hotspots. And once you frame the problem that way, there's this remarkable and very beautiful thing that happens in the paper, in my opinion. And that's (laughs) that the priors cancel out. The priors Ah. go away when you compare these corners against each other. So if you just Mm take, okay, I'm going to compare corner one to corner two and compare them, you're doing a division of the same prior divided by the same prior, so they just go away. And so um, when I quote these odds at the end of the paper, which is the big result, so the big result of my paper is that the probability of life reoccurring if we rerun Earth's clock is nine times more likely than it not happening. So it's a nine to one odds ratio in favor of life. they would be like your betting odds if you went to the cosmic casino. <laughs> um, uh, like that, that. that comes from this, this cancellation of priors and, and uh, for intelligent life, unfortunately, I can't give you such a strong answer. Nine to one is quite good. I quite like those odds. That's, that's nice and uh, optimistic. You might be willing to make a bet on that for intelligent life. It's way more scatty. I can only give you three to two odds. So that's almost 50-50, very, very close to 50-50. Three to two odds that intelligence is rare. Uh, so you know your starting point, your starting position is 50-50. All the hotspots are equally likely as each other in this sort of roulette table that you're gambling on. But um, given, it's almost like having someone tell you the weight of the dice before they throw it, and you're like, okay, actually now given that new information, I know that the rare intelligence corner is a little bit more likely having been told the extra information you just told me where in this case the information is how long did it take us to evolve on the earth and that really comes from the fact it took quite a long time i mean if intelligence was an inevitable and easy process it's weird that it happened in the last sex style not like dramatically weird but just a little bit weird Mm -hmm. and that's where that that three to two comes from so i wouldn't bet my house on that this doesn't like disprove the idea of doing SETI and looking for life house in uh, you know, intelligent life elsewhere. Cause it's such a gentle nudge that I, I wouldn't believe that. But it does give me a lot of optimism for the life search because nine to one is, is quite good. And again, this, it doesn't matter what priors you used, everybody would agree on this number. It, the only assumption here is, as we said at the very beginning of this conversation, this uniform rate process assumption. So if, if you make that assumption, no matter what priors you use, you should end up with the same answer.
0: That's a really cool analysis and a really cool result, nine to one in favor of life occurring again on Earth, and uh, three to two in terms of intelligence being a, a slower process. Now, my last question about the paper is that it seems like in this paper, you pose the question, if you replayed Earth's history again and again, how often will life arise and how often will intelligence life arise. So how are these conclusions applicable to the cosmos at large, to exoplanets and assessing our cosmic loneliness, given that you know, not every other terrestrial planet is a clone of Earth?
1: Yeah. So I guess the, the question is how common are planets like the Earth? Mm-hmm. And that's a question we don't know. And how do you define Earth-like? is it enough for a planet to be considered Earth-like if it's the same mass as the Earth and has more or less the same insulation as the Earth? But then you might ask about the tolerance. Does it need to be within 10% of the Earth's mass? Does it need to be within 1% of the Earth's mass? And those are just two criteria. What about other criteria, such as the rate of cometary impacts or the internal chemical structure of that planet, the type of star that it goes around, the stellar environment in which that system was born, so those, those are open questions. And these are questions which, you know, theorists are certainly tackling at the moment and trying to make progress on. The observers don't have any data, so they really can't make any progress on it. So we're really kind of stuck in a situation where I think the best we can do is to try and find as many planets which seemingly are like rocky worlds at the right distance for potentially liquid water and just survey them as best we can for evidence of biosignatures. And if all of those worlds are remarkably similar in terms of the initial conditions to the Earth, then my analysis would suggest that we should find an abundance of life amongst those worlds. And then this gives you a handle because you might eventually be able to split your sample. You might be able to say, okay, there's these worlds which are the closest to the Earth, let's look at those. And we keep finding biosignatures amongst them. And now let's, you know, keep increasing the width of what we call an Earth-like planet. And eventually you would expect as you go down to sort of Mars-like, Mercury-like planets, there's going to be some point where the, the fraction of hits starts to drop off. Maybe it will never drop off to zero, but you'd expect it to drop off. So in a way, we might hope to answer this question observationally, ultimately, by detecting life. And, you know, when I say nine to one, that doesn't mean that if you survey nine Earths, you're going to get a hit. Because of this parabolic nature to this, this kind of U-shaped probability, there's a one in nine chance that the probability is like 10 to the minus 40. So it could just be like such a tiny number that there really is no one else out there. So it doesn't matter. You'd have to sample 10 to the 40 planets then to get a hit by that reasoning. So it doesn't mean that because the odds are nine to one, you survey 10 planets, you get a hit. That's kind of a misconception of the odds. So it's still perfectly possible we're alone. Um, but I'm I'm an optimist because of Star Trek, and I really hope I hope there's someone out there. But the scientist in me, like you, uh, wants data before I'm convinced of that mm-hmm. fact.
0: Well, uh, David, thank you for. Telling me all about that amazing paper of yours. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't also include a question about your amazing YouTube channel to finish this podcast off. So, you know, outreach seems like a really important part of your program. And honestly, being you is sort of my goal, you know, a great researcher and also a fantastic science communicator. So, my last question is how do I become you? (laughs) No, just kidding. And my real question is, you know, what drives you to do so much science communication? And, And do you feel that? Doing science outreach has helped your own scientific ventures?
1: Absolutely, yeah. It definitely helps. Um, my motivation is twofold. A, I really enjoy doing it, it's a creative outlet for me to do the things that I do. And uh, B, I, I think it's extremely important that we are transparent about the discoveries we're making. I think scientists are uniquely placed to do this. I, I really wanted to remove the middleman a little bit between. You have the scientists, then you have the the press machine, and then you have the public. And I just wanted to speak to them directly about what we were working on and my thoughts on scientific paradoxes and quandaries that people often wonder about. So it's kind of re- removing that barrier. And I was really inspired, honestly, this is kind of embarrassing to say, but I was kind of inspired by just I used to, you know, me and my wife would like watch an episode of Game of Thrones and then we'd go on YouTube. And we'd watch breakdowns of the episode, Mm -hmm. or we'd watch a discovery episode and then watch, you know, someone commenting (laughs) about it. So it was that kind of stuff. And I was like, well, we spend so much time on on YouTube watching these things and people love space and and the universe. Wouldn't it be great if we could just sort of tap into even if we could do even like 1% of the millions of views they were doing? To me, that was like totally worthwhile. And I also felt it was important to do it online rather than in person. Because when you do an in-person event, people have to come out. They have to like get a babysitter. They have to, you know, book that evening out basically to come out and see you speak. And so the only people who are going to hear you are people who already love, absolutely love astronomy <laughs> so much that they're willing to do that. Yeah. And I like talking to those people, but the the audience I really want to talk to were the people who are maybe still in the process of discovering, you know, space and their interest in STEM and it's way less effort just to turn on a YouTube video for 10 minutes and give it a try than it is to, to book a whole evening out. So those are all the appeals of doing it to me. And when I was hired as a faculty member, I said that very clearly. I said, if I come here, this is what I'm doing. Like, just, I don't want to bullshit. <laughs> like, I don't want to get in trouble down the road, that I'm spending a lot of time doing a YouTube channel because this is going to be one of the things I do. And it's very important to me to do it. So it was important to me to have that protection like in the hiring process. And that was, I think, an attraction to Columbia because Columbia really value outreach. And then the creative thing is just fun. Like, uh, you know, I kind of like cinema, I like movies. So for my videos, I try to like borrow cinematic themes and lots of clips from my favorite movies and splice them together in interesting ways to sort of tell a story. Um, so that's just like, for me, it's almost like doing art. I kind of like that, that outlet.
0: That's awesome. I feel like there's this false perception that within the scientific community, that if you are a scientist who does science communication, you're not as serious of a scientist as you could be. And I'm glad that Columbia, your institution, recognizes the importance of scientific outreach. And I'm glad that you are proving that whole perception wrong, that you can be great at both and that they can feed back on one another and and help. Um, So just to wrap things up, how can people find you online and uh, follow your great work. So
1: yeah, probably the easiest way is the Cool Worlds channel. So if you just go to YouTube and just search Cool Worlds, we should be right up there, I think, at this point, because we have quite a lot of followers now, so you can, you can find us pretty easily. And I sometimes tweet science stuff as well, but I have way, way, way less Twitter followers than YouTube <laughs> followers. So you can find just David underscore Kipping on Twitter.
0: Fantastic. Well, David, thanks for joining me on Strange New Worlds. Um, that was such a fascinating discussion, and like I said, I already know that I want to invite you or your students back on, on this show to tell me more about the uh, amazing work that you are doing in the Cool Worlds Lab at Columbia. So thanks so much. My
1: pleasure, and keep up the great work over here on this podcast.
0: That was Professor David Kipping of Columbia University. If you made it to the end, give yourself a big pat on the back. Cause that wasn't an easy study to talk about on a podcast, but the question of our cosmic loneliness is just too important to ignore. David's calculations for the emergence of life and of intelligence are, of course, contingent on our present knowledge of the cosmos. In other words, only by exploring strange new worlds and seeking out new life and new civilizations, can we hope to refine those odds? So, I hope you continue to follow our ever-evolving perspective of our place in the cosmos, and continue to look up at the night sky and wonder. Until next time, see you out there.